studying the book of Romans for quite some time. It is what we usually do on a week-to-week basis, but we're going to actually be taking a break this week because, um, as you guys know, we didn't meet last week, and Alessandro was supposed to preach last week on the next passage in Romans, but he couldn't be here tonight. So instead of moving past his passage and then circling back, we figure uh, we would just kind of have a one-off and look at a passage that could still encourage our hearts. It's been kind of a crazy, wonky past couple weeks. You know, um, two weeks ago, we were supposed to, we didn't meet because we were supposed to go on our Praxis Beacon retreat, but because of the weather conditions, we decided to postpone that. Um, Praise God that we were able to set a different date with the same amenities, same meeting spaces and lodging. We even secured the same speaker. Um, And it all worked out in the end because, um, yeah, it was just not happening. The roads were closed on the way to Pali, and we, in hindsight, it was God's grace to us because I read there was an article that there was uh, a school that went up, and they got stuck there. So they went up on Tuesday before things got really bad, and they were supposed to come down on Friday, but um, because of the snow, uh, they couldn't do so safely. So they had to stay over the weekend. It was, I think, like, it, it, it was a school from Irvine, and they were up there for some science camp, but 600 students stuck all over that weekend until they descended from the mountain on Monday. So props to the teachers, because I think if I was there, I would just retire immediately. Um, but uh, that's why we didn't go. So we weren't able to meet two weeks ago. Last week, it was kind of just this freak accident. There was a gas leak right on Van Ness, as you see they're doing construction. Um, and so we couldn't meet. Um, and I know all that can be a bit disheartening, right? Um, just the need to be surrounded by brothers and sisters, to be in community. Um, it can take a toll on us. It can make us want to give up. But uh, the reason why we're going to be looking at Hebrews today is because we need to understand that the Christian life is a marathon, that we're called to run with endurance. And my hope is that even though this is a divergence from our study in Romans, this will be a timely word for us as we consider what it means to pursue Christ and to pursue one another. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll be studying verses 1 and 2. A very familiar, famous passage, um, but I trust it will be profitable to us. So Hebrews chapter 12, I'll read our verses for tonight, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Hebrews 12, beginning verse 1. This is the word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. God, lift our gaze to behold Christ. There are so many other things vying for our attention. Perhaps it's a busy season at work, or there's interpersonal conflict with others or just the uncertainty of the future weighs heavily upon our mind. But we ask now that you would captivate us by showcasing the beauty and loveliness and majesty of Christ. And we would be so enraptured with who he is It would be our desire to pursue him, to be changed and transformed. As we behold your son, we become more and more like him. Use your word mightily. Humble our hearts that we might be pliable in your hands 
and that you would make us more and more like Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In his provocative book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is known for writing this. It's a longer quote, but track with me. He says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leaves his nets and follows him. Bonhoeffer's quote causes us to examine what it means to be a Christian. Is grace cheap? Is knowing Jesus about how we merely spend our Sundays, a group of people we socialize with, a set of beliefs we subscribe to, a religion to possess? Survey popular Christian books, media, resources today, and you'd be duped to think that Christianity is about health and wealth, alleviating poverty, social justice, having your felt needs met, living comfortably, and raising your self-esteem. Might include some of those things, but the Bible preaches a different message. Jesus invites us to come and die. He's not one to shy away from strong language. He sets the terms for discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up this cross, and follow me. Friends, grace is not cheap. But in rejecting such a view, we can be vulnerable to swinging the pendulum too far in the opposite direction. We can have a distorted view of costly grace and what it means to take up the cross. Our minds might gravitate towards some epic event, some grandiose gesture. We imagine some Hollywood version of dying a martyr's death in a foreign land. And we wonder to ourselves whether our devotion runs that deep, whether our commitment is that firm. You know, if a gun was held to my head, would I still profess Christ? But the answer to these hypotheticals is very simple. It can be boiled down to this. Will you live for Christ? You see, none of us will be willing to die for Jesus unless our greatest ambition is to live for Jesus. As the Apostle Paul wrote, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because for Paul... They were essentially the same thing. Paul's greatest pursuit in life is Christ. And Paul's greatest reward in death is Christ. That was the secret behind living and dying for Jesus. You see, Christianity is not the call to the momentary glory of a martyr's death, but the daily, minute by minute, moment by moment, resolve to take up the cross and follow him. That is costly grace. And tonight, the book of Hebrews attempts to support and advance this thesis because the writer declares throughout this letter, Jesus Christ is always better. The author holds up Christ as a diamond and shows off his splendor, his radiance for a specific purpose. To motivate us. To motivate us to run. 
to persuade us as Christians to persevere. He spotlights the supremacy of Christ so saints continue strong in the faith so that we are mesmerized by the glories of Jesus and keep going after him. Now our passage comes after another well-known section in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11 has often been dubbed the great hall of faith. The author sets a whole cast of these Old Testament characters before us. He brings to our attention the lives of Noah, Abraham, Rahab, just to name a few. And the resounding chorus of chapter 11 is patently clear. Almost every line begins with the very theme of the chapter. By faith, by faith, by faith. The writer of Hebrews is parading these saints so that we would examine, consider the intersection of their faith and the outcome of their lives. Until we reach our section of scripture tonight. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This first word, therefore, transitions us. It swings things around. After spending an entire chapter fixing our gaze on others, the author of Hebrews now pivots to address the readers themselves. The writer moves from using the third person to loading these two verses with the first person. We, us. Do you get what he's doing? The author is bridging the gap from stories about others to our story. These Old Testament saints, yes, they ran their leg of the race. They have finished strong. Therefore, it's time for us to do the same. The author is now pointing his finger at you, at me. The baton is passed. And you're ushered into the race. You're charged to run. This is the main idea, the key verb of our passage, the only command, the only imperative. Run. The primary purpose of these two verses is to push us to run with endurance. And did you catch that? Run with endurance. The author includes this little detail to reveal what kind of race we're in. Because guess what? You don't need endurance for a sprint. You don't need endurance for a 50-meter dash. You need endurance for the marathon. For all 26.2 miles. Which is why I don't run marathons. Because it is 26.2 miles too long. Now, if you're a runner here, I don't mean any offense. If you enjoy running, good for you. But I just... I don't get it. My wife is a runner. Um, I don't get her, right? But runners, you wake up early to exercise. It's just a bizarre concept to me. You, you pay money to enter these races in order to suffer, right? Um, in fact, the word for race here in the Greek is agona, from which we derive the English words agony, okay? Just saying, scriptures speak for themselves. But the author of Hebrews is hinting to us. The Christian race, it's not over in 10 seconds. It entails agony. It requires a lifetime of running. It is a marathon where speed is not of the essence, stamina is. You see, anyone can enter the marathon. But the prize, well, that's reserved for those who complete it. Anyone can start the race, but the true Christian is the one who finishes it. Praxis, this is one of the clearest indicators of authentic faith, of true conversion. How do you prove that you're alive? You know, no one whips out their birth certificate from the back of their pocket and says, 
look, here's proof I'm alive. I have this old document that shows that I was born on this date in, in the past at this hospital. Case closed. No, right? That's silly. If you want to prove your life, all you have to do is point to the fact that you're breathing, that you're moving and living right in front of them. How do you prove that you're spiritually alive? You don't list the date you signed a card, prayed a prayer, were baptized, or professed Christ for the first time. As important as those milestones may be, what do you do? You point to present reality, to current proof. Look at my life. Look at me spiritually, that I'm breathing, moving, living right in front of you. Look at the fruit I bear, the direction I'm heading in, the race I'm running. And our text tells us it's a race that is set before us. Which means you and I do not get a say in the matter. We do not choose our course. You don't determine where it will twist, turn, or go uphill. God does. But Descartes, the same God who sets the course will supply the strength. Run your race, your race. You know, I can't imagine the kind of inclines and dips some of you will encounter on your course. And maybe if you were to examine my race, you might not be able to handle the topography or the sharp turns. You see, what's difficult for you may destroy me. And what's difficult for me may destroy you. But praise God, you don't have to run my race and I yours. Instead, God has handcrafted, tailor-made each course for the individual. And what a comfort that is. God is intricately involved because he is intimately aware. God knows full well what he is doing and what you are capable of. He will give you, he will provide all that is necessary for life and godliness. We only need to be faithful with the race that is set before us. Now, if the main thrust of this passage is that we run with endurance, what are we to do with all that surrounds this charge? Well, I'm glad I asked. Because the main thrust of the passage, yes, is to run with endurance, well, then the rest of the passage shows us how. It informs us and equips us on how to run this race. And this is where we'll spend the remainder of our time. Having established the command to run, the author provides three aids, three aids so we may run with endurance, so we may finish the race. This will serve as our outline for tonight. You have it right there in your bulletins. First, we run with endurance fueled by the faithful. Fueled by the faithful. Verse 1 says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, run with endurance. Now, what is this cloud of witnesses? Some have presented this cloud of witnesses like a coliseum, as if these witnesses are in attendance to watch you run. And preachers have been really clever by playing up with this image where, you know, you're gearing up to run and you look up to see all these Old Testament saints seated in the stands above you. You know, you can look up and you notice Jacob and Gideon um, giving you the thumbs up. And further back, you see Moses with a goofy grin, raising his staff to cheer you on. And it's just all very cheesy, right? The faithful in heaven rally now to witness you run the race. But I don't think that's what the author is actually communicating here, thank God. It'd be really weird if heaven was reduced to a spectator sport, right? Where the saints spend eternity watching my life. That's embarrassing. I don't want them to witness me blunder through my marathon. You know, I just imagine them laughing at me like, ha look at Alan, look at that old Asian guy just blundering his way, wheezing along, waddling through the track. He looks like he's about to faint. I don't want that. 
No, you see, the faithful aren't there to witness us run. The faithful are there to give witness, to give witness. Not them looking at us, but for us to look at them. And this fits the context better. The author has just spent an entire chapter inspiring us with people who have finished the race. They serve as witnesses. By their lives, they testify how to run by faith. In other words, their example is fuel to keep us going. Let me show you how. Feel crushed by how dark your circumstances or how difficult your trials are? Then remember the life of, say, Joseph how he was betrayed by his own brothers, sold into slavery. He was wrongfully accused of adultery, forgotten by those he assisted, and left to rot at the bottom of a prison cell. And yet, the end of his story burst bright with hope. You may be discouraged, friends, by loneliness, disheartened by the uncertainty of your future, or abandoned by your family because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ but you can be fortified by Joseph's witnessing words to his own brothers. You meant it for evil, but God, God meant it for good. If you feel talentless, inept, and useless for God and his purposes, well then remember the life of Moses. How he cowered initially when called to lead because of his slow speech and stammering tongue. Listen, you may not be the most natural, charismatic, or eloquent person, but witness, witness how God can use a weak vessel to display his almighty power. Moses' testimony confirms this. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Go, why? Go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Praxis, a cloud of witnesses. Christian, do you realize this is the context you desperately need to be in? This is a setting that will stimulate you to run with endurance. That's why you need to get into the word, all of it, Old Testament included. The Bible The Bible is where you go to surround yourself with a cloud of witnesses. I mean, two-thirds of it was written for this very purpose. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the Old Testament in Romans 15.4. We'll get there in a month or so. But the Apostle Paul writes this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You see the connection? The former days were recorded for our current days. The Bible contains flesh and blood examples of how, by faith, God can work in and through imperfect people. So this means your Bible reading plan is more than just a year-long program to keep. It is the very call to warm your hearts to continue the race. But that's not the only context to be fueled by the faithful. The Word of God is the way we keep company with saints of old, yes. God has provided a way to keep company with living saints. He's so kind to give us each other. Christian fellowship, primarily the church. It's no accident the author of Hebrews writes in the plural, let us run with endurance. He is addressing the community to run as a community. And that's why we're here at Praxis. That's why we gather as a people on Thursday nights. The church is an indispensable resource for fuel. It's when we're sharpened by the tender rebuke, 
and stirred by the encouraging words of those who know us, who run alongside of us. It's when we rub shoulders and raise our voices in song with the former drug addict, the mother who just miscarried, the single yet content 50-year-old that we find our second wind. It's the cloud of witnesses today that still testify to the faithfulness of God, the glories of the cross, and the goodness of Jesus Christ that pushes us to dig in and press on. By faith, they all, living and dead, ran and run the race. Fueled by the faithful, run yours, beloved. Now, this is inspiring stuff, right? Or hopefully. And being inspired by the faithful is a good thing. But it's never enough. You know, I can browse through those fitness magazines at the grocery store and even go to the gym to observe other people working on their big muzzles and chiseled abs. Now, I can be greatly inspired by how they have transformed their bodies into these sculptural masterpieces. But if I merely watch some guy pumping iron at the gym and leave it at that, it's not only creepy, but it doesn't really do much for me, right? It's not like muscles just bubble up from my arms and a six-pack doesn't just emerge from my stomach by inspiration alone. I wish it did, just doesn't work like that. No, I have to channel, I have to harness the inspiration and put it into practice, put it into action. If I go with you to the gym, all your weightlifting won't help my weight. I need to lift the dumbbells. I need to do crunches. And this is probably a terrible example because you're looking at me and you can obviously tell I don't exercise. Or maybe that's precisely why this is the best example because I am evidence how inspiration alone is never enough. So you're welcome. The point is this, fuel is useless if it just sits there. Praxis, this is where the rubber meets the road. The faithful saints can be great fuel, but you, you still need to personally run, which leads us to our second point. How will we run with endurance? First, we run fueled by the faithful, and now secondly, we run free from distractions and detriments. We run free from distractions and detriments. Every serious competitor will go to extreme lengths to gain the slightest edge. They will remove anything and everything from their system and regimen just to improve, say, their lap time by a millisecond. And you see this especially in swimmers. You know, months before the race, swimmers will restrict their diet so they don't add unnecessary pounds. They need to be shaped like, what, a torpedo, not a beach ball, because they don't want to float in the water, right? It's common sense. The day of the race, the guys, they will wear those rated R Speedos. Why? To give them the best hydrodynamic advantage. Not to make a fashion statement, it's gross, but they wear those Speedos. The hour of the race, they will plug their headphones into their ears to drown out the crowd, to drown out any distraction. And with a razor edge, they will even shave body hair to maximize their flow in the water. Why? Because it's all about the race. With a razor edge, they cut out anything that hinders them from attaining the fastest time possible. And that's what the author of Hebrews is exhorting to us. Lay aside, the text tells us, every weight to run with endurance. Free yourself from every distraction. Now, what are these weights? It's very simple. Anything that weighs you down. 
These are the things in your life that aren't necessarily sinful, but they aren't necessarily helpful either. They hold you back from running well. Look, before the race, you don't eat a whole apple pie. Before you line up, you don't put on your new cute Uggs, no matter how well they bring out your eyes. No, you drink water. You wear cleats. Sure, there are no rules against pies or boots, but just because something is permitted doesn't mean it should be pursued. The same in the Christian life. Just because something is permitted doesn't mean it should be pursued. Sure, you can watch movies, read novels, you can perfect your jump shot and get physically fit. None of those things, hear me clearly, are necessarily sinful. But listen, we ought to be wary when the good gifts of God usurp the worship of God. We ought to be alarmed when watching movies takes priority over watching our hearts. When reading novels replaces time spent in the Word. We ought to be concerned when we're willing to work on the mechanics of our jump shot, but unwilling to work on our relationships with our roommates, with each other. When we labor to be physically fit, all the while growing spiritually obese. Can you enjoy a movie, shoot some hoops? By all means, go for it and give glory to God. But when it comes at the cost, when it comes at the expense of running well, you need to soberly examine what you're really running for, what you're striving after in life. In addition to weights, the writer calls us to lay aside sin. And he describes sin as sin which clings so closely. So it's not just distractions, but free yourself from every detriment. The closer sin clings, the quicker you need to be killing it. As the great John Owen said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Those are the only two outcomes. And yet, sadly, this is where most people make shipwreck of their faith. Usually, it's not in some major egregious fashion. It's on the subtle slide the subtle but stubborn unwillingness to flee from sin. Sin will extinguish the flames of devotion. So let me ask very candidly, bluntly, could the reason that you're so apathetic, so lackadaisical about the things of Christ be because you're absorbed with your career? your greed, your selfishness? Could the bitterness you're holding on to be what's draining you of any affection for God and others? Could the perpetual reign of pornography or materialism be what's bringing your feet to a screeching halt? Look, your sin may be small in your eyes, but all it takes is an untied shoelace to trip you up, take you out. Christian, what sins need to be laid aside today? In fact, laying aside may be too gentle of a translation. It's actually the idea of casting off, of hurling away. There's no de delay with the detrimental. You ditch it or you die. And when it comes to sin, Jesus, Jesus does not mess around. He teaches, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Beloved, did you hear that? You would think gouging an eye, severing a hand, that would suffice. That would be enough. It's extreme. But Jesus wants to drive the point home. Tear the eye out and then take additional step. 
throw it away. Sever the hand and then throw it away. Put as much distance as you can from what's detrimental. This is the attitude of a serious runner towards any obstacle to crossing that finish line. And this is the attitude of any serious Christian towards any distraction, any detriment, preventing them from finishing the race. You know, as a pastor, I'm often asked about, quote-unquote, gray areas. And someone will approach and uh, ask me, you know, can I do this or that when the Bible doesn't explicitly address smoking or rap music, gambling, how physical I can be when I'm dating? But friends, that is the wrong question to ask. If a husband asks his wife, hey, how close can I get to another girl before you get mad? That says everything, right? That tells you everything about him and his relationship with his wife. The desire of his heart shouldn't be, how close can I get to another girl? But what will bring me closer to my wife? You see, the question that dominates the Christian heart isn't how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? No, the question that dominates the Christian's heart, the Christian's greatest desire and governing principle should be, what will make me run faster? What will help me love Jesus more? You filter everything through that standard. Because in the end, weights and sins, for the serious Christian, they're pretty much in the same category. You can lump them into the same pile. Whether you label them as a distraction or detriment is beside the point. What matters is that you're freed from both for the sake of running well. And this is what it's all for. The last way to run with endurance is to run focused on Jesus Christ. Focused on Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see, if you want to run well, you don't look at your shiny shoes and observe how they might match your outfit. If you want to run well, you don't look around you to the side to gauge where your rivals or teammates are. Bottom line, if you want to run well, you look straight ahead. You focus on Jesus. He is the crown after all. I mean, have you ever wondered why Jesus isn't included in Hebrews chapter 11? Well, I'll tell you why. Jesus is excluded from the great hall of faith because he is the pinnacle. Chapter 11 builds towards the apex of chapter 12. Jesus is the one by faith all saints run towards and for. So while the characters in chapter 11 can inspire us to great faith, it is Jesus alone who authors faith. While these Old Testament saints ran faithfully, Jesus runs perfectly. He's unrivaled, matchless, preeminent. And I know what you're thinking. It's so easy to write him off, right? Well, of course he did. He's God. But the writer doesn't identify him by Christ or as the Son of God or any other divine title. At this pivotal moment, the writer uses Jesus' name to underscore his humility, his humanity, when he condescends to be among us, taking on flesh and dwelling with his people. He is the great high priest who can sympathize with us because he is one of us. So look, look to Jesus. Compare your sins with his blood, your wants with his fullness, your unbelief with his faithfulness, your weakness with his strength, your inconsistency with his steadfast love. Much 
of running with endurance is a matter of where you're looking, whether it's at yourself or around or at Christ, the goal. When you feel temptation to be unbearable, focus on Jesus who was tempted for 40 days but persevered. When your devotion wanes, focus on Jesus who, though exhausted, persevered in prayer. When you tire of being belittled for your faith, focus on Jesus who is persecuted to the greatest degree but persevered to the greatest extent. How far did Christ go? How long did he persevere? He ran and finished the most strenuous course none of us will ever be required to run. The writer describes it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, fix your gaze upon Jesus. Consider his cross. You know, the cross was the most gruesome way a criminal could be executed. Hung and suspended from a wooden beam, the crucified would have to push against the nails driven through his hands and feet to raise his chest cavity for a breath of air. And this sick cycle of up and down would repeat over and over again until usually strength was so sapped from the person that the crucified often died by gurgling, by suffocating on their own blood. Consider his shame. Jesus was despised from birth, deserted by his brothers, denied by the disciples, delivered over to die. He was stripped, naked, beaten, mocked, and raised as a spectacle for all to see and jeer at. Now consider Jesus Christ against all odds and opposition. See his joy set ablaze when he turns his face towards the cross. See his love as he pours himself out from a tree, his life beaming and bleeding forth that we, we might have life in and through him. See his power as the king of kings wears a crown of thorns to defeat the sting of death, to resurrect from the grave and ascend to the throne of God. And there he sits. There he sits because his work is complete. There he sits because his race is finished. The slate of sin is wiped clean. Salvation is secured. The suffering, though very real, was for a moment. But the triumph, the triumph is forever. And now, Christian, your trailblazer calls to you, focus on me. Run. Fight the good fight. Run with endurance. Enter into the joy of your Savior. Non-Christian, are you here? The missionary William Carey said, I'm not afraid of failing. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Is that you? You run a different race. You're striving after temporary pleasures. You're consumed and competing in the rat race of prosperity and prestige. But the greatest tragedy in life is to strain so hard to succeed so well in things that do not matter. Before you can ever run in the manner that the author encourages, you need to enter the right race. And it starts at the foot of Calvary. The only way to enter is to embrace the cross Jesus Christ has endured. This is what Christianity is about. This is the gospel. The Bible teaches us that we were created in God's image to live in right relationship with him. But we have played the fool and spurned our maker. We have rebelled and sinned against him, breaking his commands, deciding how we will live our life. But the punishment for high treason 
against an eternal king is eternal condemnation. And the story ended there, it'd be just and right. We would get what we deserve. But God, but God intervenes and he initiates and he sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, living a perfect, blameless, righteous life so that when he goes to the cross, he does not deserve to be there. But he can bear our sins. He can absorb the full wrath of his Father so that the offer of salvation can be extended to wretched people like you and me. That if we would repent, if we would turn from our sins and confess Christ, place our faith, trust in what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection, God would look upon his own son as if he had lived my sin-filled life and he would crush his son. And God would look upon me as if I lived Jesus' perfect holy life. And I'd be reconciled, forgiven by grace, welcomed into his family, set on course for an eternity of bliss and joy with our Heavenly Father. This is the cost of discipleship and the call of Christ that we would run with endurance because we know the end. I started with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but didn't really tell you much about his life. Bonhoeffer, if you don't know, was a German who lived during the time and reign of Adolf Hitler. And at the age of 29, he was already a seasoned pastor and the primary teacher of a small seminary. World War II was well underway, but Bonhoeffer still trained students for ministry through prayer, study, worship, recreation, and work. And during those tense times, Bonhoeffer and his students, they lived on the edge of eternity. Well, their worst nightmare became a living reality. On September 1937, the Nazi police found and shut down the seminary. The students were soon arrested. And that was the same year Bonhoeffer published his book, The Cost of Discipleship, the one I quoted from at the beginning. And little did he know the lengths he would go to to live up to what he wrote. In 1943, Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Gestapo. And after being shuttled and moved from prison to prison, after enduring grueling conditions and abuse, after being interrogated and mercilessly tortured, all of it finally came to an end. On the gray dawn of an April day in 1945, in the Nazi camp of Flossenburg, Bonhoeffer was executed. He was hung by special order of Hitler's executioner, Heinrich Himmler. And Bonhoeffer's life and death became a living adaptation of his book. He wrote of grace, and it cost him his life. I started with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Let me close with another. He writes, Costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You are bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. And above all, it is grace. Because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Bonhoeffer knew costly grace in its fullest sense. But it's what sparked joy in his heart to endure his cross 
and run right through it, straight to Jesus Christ. He died for his faith, but when he did, beloved, he finished well. Friends, run the race fueled by the faithful, free from distractions and detriments, and focused on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, what a marvelous passage because it presents to us Jesus Christ in all his splendor and glory. He is our motivation. And Lord, you are so kind to provide more incentives to run well because it is not a race we participate in as maverick believers, but as those who are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, dead and present even today, Lord, we see from familiar faces, brothers and sisters who will cheer us on. Lord, help us with fierceness and honesty to see what might stumble us, that we would cast aside whatever weights and sins that cling so closely to us. Oh, Lord, give us grace and humility and strength to relinquish our grip upon our idols or upon our preferences, all for the sake of pursuing you. And Lord, would you rivet us upon the cross? Would we be captivated by Jesus Christ who has shown us the way, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And with great joy, may we follow him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.